Good morning, uh, church. It's great to uh, be speaking to you uh, this morning. It seems like uh, a long time ago since we gathered uh, last uh, Sunday. It was only seven days ago, I promise. But um, another lockdown, another change in the way that we uh, live. And as I watched the announcement and the subsequent reporting of the lockdown, it seemed like the message was, was clear. The message was, it's going to be a really tough few months, but by Easter, things will be better. Which I found really interesting because as, as Christians, that's what we've been sharing for the last 2,000 years. It might seem dark now, but hope arrives at Easter. Easter is on its way and hope comes. Our government says, you know, if we can just survive the winter months, then spring arrives and hope comes at Easter as we, in the form of the vaccine. As I've reflected on that message, I've also been reflecting on how often as uh, Christians, our lives take that form. We deliver the similar message. We celebrate Christmas and the birth of Jesus, and then we jump straight to Easter and the cross. We rightly point people to the cross, the place of hope, but in doing so, we sometimes can miss the, the human life that Jesus lived between his, his birth and between his death and resurrection, and why that life lived was important. If the cross was all that we were waiting for, then why did Jesus live for as long as he did? Why didn't he die straight away? What was the purpose of his upbringing? What was the purpose of those uh, three years of his public ministry? Now, I'm not saying we don't celebrate the, the, the birth of Jesus. Uh, we don't remember his death. We don't celebrate the, the resurrection. Don't panic. They are incredibly vital to our faith. What I'm suggesting is that sometimes we miss the importance of our life lived. And over the next few months, we're going to be looking at the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a, a collection of teachings that, um, that Jesus gave his disciples. Um, it, it could have been in one sitting, just one really long set of teachings. It's more likely that it was small uh, collections of small teachings that he gave his disciples. But we're going to find Jesus teach on some huge issues. We're going to find Jesus talking about anger. We're going to find Jesus talking about lust uh, divorce, about loving your enemies, about uh, giving to the poor, about fasting, about dealing with anxiety and pressures of life, as we've heard from today. Huge issues that Jesus is going to speak directly into. To warn you, it's not going to be a comfortable series. Jesus' words will offend you and upset you at times. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, uh, spoke of the, the Sermon of the Mount, and he says, if you find yourself arguing with the Sermon on the Mount at any point, it means either that there is something wrong with you or else that your interpretation of the sermon is wrong. We're going to find uh, things that, are, that, that Jesus says that are going to confront us. They're going to challenge our attitudes and behaviors. They're going to demand a change. Now, just to say that the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings you're going to hear is not a set of rules and regulations to follow. For example, when Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. This is not a rule that we live by where we end up with, with no clothes because we've given it all away. Now, this is instead a description uh, and a picture of the character that Jesus demands of those who follow him. We find particular illustrations in the Sermon on the Mount that demonstrate a general principle and attitude. 
And one of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount, one of the reasons I, I love it so much, um, is that it's so easy to understand. There's certain bits of the Bible I get to, and I'm like, oh, I, I need another book to interpret what has just been said, or I need someone to explain this to me. The Sermon on the Mount is a fairly straightforward, easy-to-understand set of teachings. Jesus is teaching his disciples, you know, ordinary men, fishermen, called to, to leave their nets and to follow him. He's not speaking to intellects in a, in a lecture theatre. He is speaking to a group of everyday guys on a mountain. But if we don't understand the purpose of Jesus' life, then we will not fully understand what Jesus is calling us to. You know, we can look at the teaching, we can, we can look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we can say, oh, isn't Jesus an incredible teacher? And we try and follow every teaching literally. Or we can see the teaching and say, oh, that, is, that way of living is so hard. I can never live up to God's perfect standard. I'm so glad Easter is coming, and I'm forgiven. And then we end up carrying on living the way we did before. Or the other option is, that we uh, understand the purposes of Jesus' life. We understand the message he was communicating, and that will allow us to fully understand and embrace the teaching that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So to help us understand this as, a, as an intro this week, I want us to look at what Jesus' ministry was all about. Why did he live the life he did? And to do that, I want us to look at Matthew 4, which sets the background ready to, for Matthew 5 to 7 and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just left the, the, the desert. He's had this encounter where he's tested by the devil. Um, he, he leaves then his home in Nazareth, and he, he moves to Capernaum, and he's about to begin his ministry. And in Matthew 4, uh, from verse 17, it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As, it is, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two older brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among them. So his fame spread for all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is alive and active. That in it we find life and we find you. And Lord, I do pray that as we look at this scripture this morning, we would find life and we would find you. That you would reveal afresh to us something of who you are. That you would change us as we engage with your life and the words in your holy scripture. Amen. Jesus embarks on this uh, three years of public ministry and he, he, he begins by declaring a message which is highly significant. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This word repent means to, to change one's mind. It involves stopping and turning from one way of thinking or living, turning and living a different way. Why should people repent? Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven is here. What does Jesus mean? The kingdom of heaven is used throughout Matthew's gospel. Elsewhere, it's the term kingdom of God, but it's the the same thing. When Jesus says heaven, he's not talking about a kingdom that we go to when we, we die, but he's instead talking about something that is happening on earth as he speaks. Now, I'm sure you uh, may be aware that we have recently left the European Union. Do you know if you know that? You might have seen that on the news maybe once or twice. Don't panic. I'm not going to go into Brexit and politics. Um, But one of the things that will change for uh, if you are from the UK is that when you get a new passport, your passport will change from the current red to blue. And on the front of the passport, it says the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And if you have a UK passport, inside the first page, it it says the following message, and and hopefully it should come up on your screen. I hope you can see it. Um, It it says, um, Her Britannic Majesty Secretary of State requests and requires, in the name of Her Majesty, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. We are part of a kingdom that the queen reigns over. That means that we have rules to follow. And if we don't follow those rules, we might end up living at Her Majesty's pleasure. Um, But we also, uh, being in the kingdom, bring certain benefits. Uh, Not all all kingdoms have the same benefit. Some kingdoms have more benefits than others. But we receive those benefits not purely because we are human, Not because of who we are, but instead because of the kingdom that we are part of. And the idea of kingdoms is throughout the Bible. We find it in the first pages of the Bible in Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals, and over all of the creatures that moved along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God is ruling over all things. Uh, Such is his power that, that everything is created just by the sound of his voice. He is ruling and reigning over everything. And then he creates humanity, man and woman. God is in total control, ruling over creation, including humans. And then he makes a a truly shocking decision. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God is king over his kingdom. And whilst he doesn't give up his kingship, he shares ownership. Firstly, he makes man and woman in his image. Throughout the creation story, we see you know, God making day and night, but they're not in his image. We see him making birds and fish and giraffes, but they're not in his image. And then he makes man and woman 
in his own image. He shares something of, of himself with them. But then he goes further than that. He allows man and woman, humanity, to rule and reign with him. That they would be like him. They would be mini-gods ruling on his behalf. He is still the king, but he has made, us ruler, made them rulers over his kingdom. Genesis 3 it tells us the story that, of Adam and Eve, you know, deciding that living under God's ultimate authority isn't enough. God gave them the parameters for, uh, for what they can do. You know, all of the fruit, you can eat the fruit from any tree apart from one. He says, good and evil. And we see that not being enough. All that he has given them isn't enough, and they want to take control. They want to rewrite the rules. And we see this alternate kingdom comes up where God is not the king. We see this uh, rebellion playing out throughout the early chapters of Genesis as, as people try to live without God being their king. We see the climax of this in the, the story of the, the Tower of Babel. If you know it, people have this idea. They plot and they plan. And this is the idea they come up with in Genesis 11:4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Look at us. Look how great our kingdom is. God responds. He comes down and he humbles them. He scatters them throughout the world, making it clear that he is not a king to be taken lightly. God raises up a new leader, Abraham and his wife Sarah, who would live under God's rule as humanity always should. But then God's people end up in slavery, the Israelites in Egypt. Here we see the kingdom of Pharaoh being confronted by the kingdom of God. Pharaoh is saying, I'm the king, I'm the king, I rule the kingdom. So God comes with Moses and says, let my people go. And then he sends the plagues, the conflict of two kingdoms, but God's kingdom wins. God's people then enter a, a covenant relationship with him. God sets out the laws. He says, if you're going to be a kingdom people, this is how you have to live. He writes the Ten Commandments and then 613 more laws about what would mark them out from all the other kingdoms in the world. What would it be to be a kingdom people? The people he rescue, he leads them through the, he leads them through the water, you know, the, the seas part in front of him. He does the miraculous. He provides manna for them. He, he writes these laws and he, he delivers them to, to Moses and does incredible things, yet for the people it still isn't enough. They keep pushing back against this kingdom. The people who are rescued refuse to follow his ways. And then they are taken off eventually into exile into Babylon. And as the pages of the, the Old Testament are closed, God's people are still left waiting. Waiting because there was a promise that one day God was going to come and reestablish his rule and his kingdom. We get to the pages of Matthew that we just read from at the start. And this, there is a new kingdom. This isn't Pharaoh's kingdom anymore. It's not the alternate kingdom that they tried to do at, at, when they built the Tower of Babel. This kingdom is instead the Roman Empire. And into this backdrop, Jesus arrives. Remember the Christmas story. We looked at it over December. The wise men visit Herod and tell him of this promised king. The idea of a new king is so dangerous for Herod that he has all the boys under the age of two killed. After Jesus is raised up by his family, after he's prepared in the desert, Jesus turns up and he declares, the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus didn't get killed for being a good moral teacher. 
Love your neighbor. Kill him. No, no, he didn't. Jesus got killed because he presented himself as the one who was reinstating God's rule over the earth. He was killed for, being, for claiming to be the king. King of the Jews, they wrote on his cross when they killed him. We find a king establishing his kingdom. What does the king do? He gathers people who will follow him. He starts with those fishermen. Let's go back to Matthew 4, verse 18. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. These guys leave everything, including their business and their father, not because Jesus is a great moral teacher, not because it was going to advance their career, not because they were lonely and wanted to be part of a group. They follow Jesus because they had been waiting for this new ruler, the new ruler of the kingdom, and in Jesus, they see it. Is that why you're following Jesus? Those first followers of Jesus are giving up everything to follow him. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Kingdoms of the world exert power over each other. In the way of the world, kingdoms gain by other, others losing. God's people are waiting for this victorious saviour who would establish his kingdom over all the other kingdoms. And Jesus said, instead of to be part of this kingdom, it's going to involve sacrifice, service, and surrender. That yes, this kingdom would be victorious, but not in the way you expect, not by the world's terms. And it was true. Victory hardly looked like a man on a cross hanging from it. Yet on the cross, little did they know that the kingdom was about to defeat the powers of death. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who lived in the 20th century, who lived through the world wars. And he speaks of following Jesus and he says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first is Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is the, that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the very beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus invites us to follow him, and it is an invitation to come and die. We gain the kingdom of heaven by dying to this world. Matthew 4 tells us after gathering those disciples to be part of his group, verse 23, then he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
God knows that his kingdom is, and his rule is so different to any other kingdom that he spent time teaching and proclaiming that kingdom. People haven't seen anything like this before, so Jesus needed to teach them so they could understand. If Jesus is king, what does it mean for us to live in that kingdom? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. How do we live under a heavenly rule? How do we follow Jesus while we physically live in an earthly kingdom, but living as kingdom bearers? How do we live being in this world, but not of this world? And now from my, I know from my own life how easy it is to live in this world and in to embrace all that the world values. You know, the things that we get our identity from, fame, money, job title, social status, the way we spend our time, our attitude to food and alcohol, the things we watch on TV, the way we deal with stress, our attitudes towards others, the staff room gossip. The family arguments, the way you react when someone cuts you up as you are driving. Recently, there was a high-profile church leader in America who was fired after an inappropriate relationship. Um, And there was lots of news articles written about him. Uh, And one stood out in particular, and it was from the US Spectator, and it was a writer called Ben Sixsmith. And he says this, I'm not religious, So it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Do our lives show that we're living in an alternate kingdom? Or like that writer, does it look like very much like as if they want to become more like the world? Do we live in a way which shows that we are living under a different authority to the world around us? Or do we live in a way which makes the world think that we just the same as them, we just have a weekly meeting that we go to or watch online at the moment? I don't know about you, but I want to be known as someone who is radically following Jesus. That being in the kingdom would so radically transform my view, uh, transform my life, that it would change the way that I treat others. It would change my relationships in and out of the church. It would change how I care for the poor. It would change my views on marriage. It would change the way I deal with the pressures of life. And as we read, and as over the next few weeks, as we read Jesus' words, he's going to redefine reality for us, as we see what living in the kingdom is truly like. The decision that we have to make is that whether we will choose to embrace that kingdom. What will it look like if we make Jesus king over everything in our lives? What would 2021 look like if it was the year we chose to reorientate our lives around him? Because in doing so, there's a wonderful invitation back to Matthew 4 for the final time. If the band want to return, that'd be great. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by the demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and and he healed them. And great crowds followed him. Where Jesus is king, 
we always see him breaking it. Notice that Jesus teaches, he proclaims the kingdom, and then he confronts the powers of evil through healing and transformation. Notice who encounters Jesus. It's the poor, the rejected, the downtrodden. They come to him, and nobody walks away from their encounter with Jesus unchanged. As we live out the kingdom, we will be a light guiding others to Jesus. As we live out the kingdom, we will see Jesus move in power. We will see the sick healed. We will see the poor raised up. We will see the lonely placed in families. We will see the prisoners set free. The Isaiah 61 call that we have on us as a church will happen as we live out that kingdom. Those three words that I spoke of last week, re-engage, revitalize, reinvest. Do we need to re-engage with Jesus today to choose to make him king in our lives again? What areas of our lives do we know we are living in the way that the world lives rather than as citizens of the kingdom of God? What are some of those areas? We're going to have some incredible, uh, there's going to be some incredibly challenging messages over, throughout these weeks. But if there's areas that you know right now that you are living opposed to the kingdom of God, you are living in the way of the world, don't say, well, I'm going to wait until see what Jubilee say about it. I'm, going to, I'm living this way, but I'll wait till later on in Matthew when they talk about that topic, and then I'll see if I need to change. No, I believe God is on your case right now by the Holy Spirit, highlighting those areas that he wants to break in that he wants to breathe new life into, that he wants to revitalize in these coming months as you choose to submit to his rule. And thirdly, what opportunities do you have to reinvest in what God is doing through us as a church as we live out this kingdom? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you came to reign, that you came to rule. We know where it's heading. We know there is a moment to come when we are gathered around your throne and the whole world knows you're the king. That's where we're going. But Lord, we pray you would help us to live in your kingdom now. Lord, you said... You asked us to pray, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, I pray that that prayer would be known in each of our lives. That we would know what it is to live out the kingdom of heaven on this earth. As we go about our daily business, as we, uh, as we spend time with our family, as we spend time in our jobs, as we go about the city, as we sit at home by ourselves, Lord, would we know a reality of your kingdom? Would you redefine our reality so that we would see what your kingdom is truly like? That we wouldn't live as this world. We wouldn't have our hopes in what the world delivers. We wouldn't live with a, a sense of, of just we, all the stuff that we value is that of the world. Where there are idols that we have put up. Where there are idols that we have said, actually, this is what a successful life would look like where we have tried to build our own kingdom, would you break them down right now in the name of Jesus? May you cause alternate kingdoms to tumble 
Would you cause alternate kingdoms to tumble so that you can establish your rule and your reign in our lives? That every one of us would know the reality of living with you as the king. That it would change our every moment. That as we walk around, we would walk around with as citizens of heaven. That we would live in a way which says, I don't value what the world values. That we'd enjoy the gifts that you give us but we would say they are not the ultimate. Any career you give me is not the ultimate. Any money in my bank account, any relationship, any future is not the ultimate. There is a kingdom that is being built and being with you in that kingdom is better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Would you define reality to us afresh? where we need to re-engage with you today. Lord, I do pray right now you would come and minister to our hearts where we have been living to another rule, where we have been living under another kingdom's rule. Would you come and minister to our hearts, break in. Lord, where we need fresh life breathed into us, where there is areas of our life where we know we're just living contrary to you, Lord, would you come and breathe your Holy Spirit in would we give up trying to trying hard? Would we give up trying to just do a little bit better each year? Would we instead be people who are just intent on seeing your face and experiencing your spirit that would transform us? May we be people who rest into grace and then allow that grace to transform us. Would we, even this week, have eyes to see what you are doing, how you are establishing your rule and your reign over our city? And would we invest in that work? Would we give ourselves to that? A kingdom that is never, never going to fade. Would we place our hope in eternal things this week, Lord?